Welcome back to our Adepec on Air podcast series, live from the wood stand here at Adepec. I'm Steph, your host this afternoon, and I'm joined by my colleague Dan Carter, President of Decarbonisation at Wood, and Daria Novacek, Director of Policy and Partnerships at the Hydrogen Council. Welcome both. Um, today we're delving into the complex hydrogen landscape and the projects that are transforming the use of hydrogen across our industry. So decarbonization, net zero, has been the focus of the conference. But, um, but what is the role of hydrogen in the decarbonization space? And is it having a transformative impact on our global industry? I'll come to you first, Daria. Thank you, and it's great to be here. And thank you so much for um, this excellent conversation. We are, of course, delighted uh, to have Wood as Hydrogen Council member. And uh, to those of you who may not know us, Hydrogen Council is a global coalition of CEOs that today represent over 150 industrial leaders in hydrogen across the value chain and across geographies from the MENA region and Asia Pacific to the Americas um, and uh, Africa. So we bring together the coalition of um, the companies that are indeed advancing from vision to action and implementing hydrogen projects uh, across the value chain and across geographies. Um, and we see indeed that the potential of hydrogen in contributing to the transition to net zero is enormous. Hydrogen can in fact can help abating between 60 and 80 gigaton of CO2 by mid-century. And we see hydrogen play a critical role, in particular, of course, in high to abate sectors, but also across the multitude of end-use sectors and countries across geographies are currently exploring their own pathways and developing and designing their hydrogen economies. And another critical, of course, um, aspect of hydrogen is um, the fact that it can help us bring clean electrons and renewable electrons via molecules across long distances. And, and that, of course, has um, substantial cost efficiency as well as kind of carbon abatement benefits associated uh, to that. And, of course, we see enormous potential for the development of cross-border trade corridors that can help us optimize uh, the energy systems globally and save up to $6 trillion in energy system cost by mid-century. Now, that's a key point, isn't it, Daria, that we've got geographies around the world where other solutions like CCUS might not be a practical option because they don't have the available stores to sequester CO2. So being able to generate hydrogen, capture that CO2 at source, if it's from a natural gas-based feedstock or from a renewable-based feedstock import directly, is going to be key to helping decarbonize those geographies that perhaps are less uh, geographically or geologically challenged. Absolutely. And maybe just to build on that, I think that for there is a growing consensus on the fact that we really need to move beyond hydrogen colors and the color-coded scheme because it's not particularly helpful and we need really transparency on the carbon footprint associated with hydrogen production, conditioning and transport. And I think that it's very encouraging that we see that global consensus that arises in particular from the latest G7 and G20 discussions around the need for focusing uh, in particular on carbon footprint and moving away from the color coding scheme. And the latest IEA report prepared for G7 also points to that need. And, and again, I think that um, that would help revealing also the, the carbon abatement benefits of a variety of hydrogen solutions, including, of course, CCS-enabled hydrogen, which will be critical going forward. 
It's also very important too when you start to look at things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the USA in terms of the amount of the subsidy you can gather based on the carbon intensity and maybe the cross-border adjustment mechanisms as well that are coming in place in Europe from that trading perspective, making sure we really understand that the solution we've got our hands around is um, of benefit from a wider decarbonisation scenario. It kind of, it's a bit of an adjacency, but it brings me back to, you know, I've seen the press release from Lego earlier on this week. So Lego were looking for alternative sources of plastic mm. to manufacture their products. They've actually now pulled away from that somewhat because the alternative opportunities actually carry a larger carbon footprint throughout their entire life cycle than traditional product production routes, which is why it's really important to focus on carbon intensity. Absolutely, yeah. And maybe just to add to that, I think that it's very positive that we see that um, there is, while there is a plethora of national approaches and national uh, um, that national um, methodologies that are so the methodologies for greenhouse gas emissions assessment that are being adopted at national level, uh, as well as different thresholds, of course, uh, for qualifying hydrogen as clean or, or indeed sustainable. Uh, we also see that there is an international an effort internationally. Um, that is being advanced, uh, I think, very um, at, a, at a very good pace right now um, to come up with a global, common global benchmark. There is an ongoing work on the global ISO standard and an ISO methodology for greenhouse gas emissions assessment of hydrogen production, conditioning or conversion and transport. And I think that would be extremely helpful for us to have a common global benchmark against which we can compare the different, of course, uh, production methods as well as transportation methods, ultimately to be able to compare apples and apples as we're seeking to develop a global market. And the power of hydrogen lies not just in its environmental credentials, but in its versatility. How can carbon intensive industries utilize this functionality, Dan? I think the real power of hydrogen is to be utilized in those carbon intensive industries as a fuel to displace existing natural gas um, you know it should be a relatively cost effective modification for many of those industries to transfer from methane to uh, hydrogen end use but providing actually reducing those emissions significantly in terms of intensity the challenge that we've really got within the industry right now is developing the demand profile in parallel with the supply side so, you know, we see a lot of those projects that are being successful and are moving ahead right now. They're actually within integrated ecosystems where a particular organization has either got an offtake partner or they have their own hydrogen demands to help decarbonize their own facilities that they can supply for a large portion of the hydrogen generation they're looking at. So it really is a challenge around how we kick off the scalability and deliverability of the hydrogen ecosystem. And building on what uh, you said, then I think that we, the latest IEA report, Global Hydrogen Review, points to the fact that a lot of the support measures that decision makers are putting in place are very much on supply side, and actually demand side is really lagging behind. And what we see is absolutely critical going forward is actually for decision makers to focus on um, putting more efforts and actually focusing more on the demand pool measures. Because arguably, once you get those right, that would create ripple effects across the entire value chain. So we see so that, for example, contracts for difference are emerging as some of the uh, some of the policy tools of choice to incentivize fuel switching across some of the end uses, as well as carbon contracts for difference. Um, but also, we feel that there is a critical need for legally binding targets and quotas. Yep. Uh, even if we look at Europe, 
they, there is a famous target, of course, of 20 million tons of, of uh, renewable and low-carbon hydrogen to be uh, consumed in, and, uh, in Europe by 2030. But if you look at the legislative requirements, they translate on the demand side, they translate into 5 million tons. So there is a big gap between 5 and 20. And we really need stronger demand pool measures in order to make sure that um, that the um, that ultimately the consumers are incentivized to switch fuels. It's the Inflation Reduction Act again is a good example of that, isn't it? Because you can generate a credit for producing your hydrogen. Let's say if you generate a credit for capturing CO2, you could then combine those products into a e-fuel and perhaps take advantage of the clean fuels credits on top of that but if you were to use that hydrogen to decarbonize there is no incentive unlike a potential of 85 dollars a ton if you were to capture that co2 instead so there needs to be something in place for that co2 avoidance mechanism as well as just the capture pins and david you touched you've touched on a few reports and i know obviously from being at the hydrogen council the council you're in amongst the data constantly being at the facts or figures is there any other latest insights that you can share with us and your research? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if we take a, a step back and look at to the development and hydrogen deployment globally, um, of course, we have a pipeline of mature project proposals, over a thousand of those, and they could potentially translate into some 320 billion in investments by 2030. Now, of course, there is a big gap between announcements and the projects that, are FI that have been FID'd. About 10% of those have been FID to date. Now, um, having said that, we, if we consider the total amount of investments committed into hydrogen, as of January 2023, we are right now at 30 billion. And it, we were at 20 billion a year ago. Now, that amount may, not, may seem um, not as large as we would like it to be, but um, it used to take the industry 10 years to get to 1 billion and we jump 10 billion within a year now. So if we take a historical perspective on the developments in hydrogen deployment that we see uh, most recently, the, the pace of change and the pace of deployment is it quite enormous. Uh, and we see really substantial growth in terms of the, the development and the uptake of hydrogen across the value chain. There, is, there has been um, a substantial rise in uh, the development of the manufacturing capacity, electrolyzer manufacturing capacity. We saw 150% year-on-year year on year growth just within a year. And we are at 8.8 .8 gigawatt of installed capacity for electrolyzer manufacturing. Currently, this is just one example. We have over 80,000 uh, vehicles, fuel cell electric vehicles on the road today right now. Um, and uh, the growth indeed has been substantial across um, the value chain, so both on the manufacturing production side as well as on the end use side. I think the key point there as well is there still needs to be more. I think the the cost of capex cost of electrolyzer generation is still something like you know, four hundred dollars per megawatt for alkaline, maybe up to a thousand to two thousand for PEM, even more for solid oxide based technologies. So in order to bring down that overall capex point of deployment, we need to scale up manufacturing capacity significantly Absolutely. to meet demand, especially to meet that $320 billion worth of uh, projects in the development pipeline that you were talking about. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And of course, 
one should also not forget the fundamental challenge of ensuring that there is um, renewable capacity on the upstream side made available. And um, that's, this is where we, we see critical, again, need for moving and synchronizing action on the, in, on the industry side and also, on, again, on the, on the decision maker side when it comes to permitting processes, for example, accelerating those as we know that in the case of some of the renewable projects in particular, for example, um, uh, large scale uh, wind projects, it can take up to six to, from six to seven years to get a permit. And of course, that's not the pace at which it would help us to, to move forward with, the, with deployment of the relevant capacities that will be needed to feed um, the, the electrolyzers in the years to come. Yeah, I think it's also interesting how the types and shapes of projects are developing. So obviously, we've got a lot of emphasis on hydrogen production in Europe, where perhaps the renewables could have an alternative source directly to grid. But then also, you know, we've been working on projects like uh, the Total Erin project in South America, where you're looking at monetizing what really is a stranded resource there by transforming into hydrogen for export. The same with some of the um, unconventional gas to hydrogen projects we've been doing here in the Middle East. So you're starting to create those trade flows around that global ecosystem as well. Absolutely. And this is indeed something that also our um, trade flow study points to, the fact that, of course, it makes a lot of sense to make the most use of um, the locations and places around the world where there is abundant um, um, potential for renewable sources and then effectively transfer those uh, clean electrons or clean molecules that were that could be generated thanks to uh, technologies such as uh, CCS um, um, and bring them to the main demand pools that are emerging uh, in different parts of the world, in Europe and Asia in particular. Um, and uh, we see that indeed the producers in countries in the Middle East alongside the US uh, can become some of the lowest cost suppliers globally and in the time frame between 2030 and 2014 in particular. Yeah. I think that applies to the, um, the natural gas production as well, because generally the whole life cycle carbon emissions involved in the natural gas supply chain are probably less than they would be elsewhere because of the ease of production. So you see those dovetailing of the hydrogen generation technologies with carbon capture coming to play, as, long as, as well as those transport mechanisms, whether that's ammonia, liquid organic hydrogen carriers, maybe in the future liquefied H2s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there is, of course, a great potential for making use of the existing infrastructure and repurposing it for the, um, um, yeah, to uh, repurposing and retrofitting it for hydrogen. Of course, in the US, there is a wide network um, of pipeline infrastructure that can be used. And uh, we see that hydrogen, going back to your question about versatility, um, provides a unique solution to bridge the historical silos between power, gas, and liquid fuels and really act as that integrator of the energy system. And we have actually most recently um, conducted a study where we have looked at the system integration of hydrogen across three archetypal regions. We looked at Houston in the US, Japan, and Central Western Europe, three very different regions in terms of their energy mix, in terms of the composition of the energy system. But we see some clear patterns and um, clear similarities in terms of the role that hydrogen can play, in particular in providing greater flexibility at system level, um, and um, as well as as well as of course massive cost savings alongside the carbon abatement benefits that we have discussed earlier. And of course, for uh, this region, for the Middle East, uh, there are um, yeah there is a suite of opportunities for hydrogen to be used, of course, 
um, as an important export vector, but also for uh, decarbonization and uh, of local industries. That's right. And you've both you've both touched on a few different projects or initiatives or things that are going on globally. I guess was there any particular transformative hydrogen projects that you could tell us about something with that really creating value for industry and potentially consumers as well? So I think um, one of the projects that we're working on here in the Middle East is actually designed to produce 10 million tons a year of hydrogen using unconventional resources as the feedstock. So it's providing another opportunity to monetize that. Again, fitting into that value chain where you're creating hydrogen, ammonia, exporting that ammonia to the Far East for use in health and decarbonize industry. So I think that's transformative because of the scale, the way the technology is being deployed at that scale for that particular project, and also the trade flow that is creating between the partners and that type of opportunity. Yeah, I think this is an excellent example, and we see that it, it, it's great to see companies um, embrace some of these, this first mover risk, of course, that they are associated with, this, with these large-scale projects, but these are indeed having a transformative effect for the whole industry as they uh, effectively trailblaze the, um, the, um, the potential pathways and those trade flows uh, that we expect to emerge going forward. So I think that um, we see, of course, that there are a number of uh, also pilot, pilot projects emerging for liquid hydrogen. We have seen the first shipment of um, liquid hydrogen from Australia to Japan um, just last year taking place. And I think that these are also, of course, some of the examples that give us a flavor of um, the sort of expansion of the market that we may see in the next two decades. Now, the theme of Adopec this year is decarbonizing faster and together. And this is something we're asking all of our podcast participants. Dan, you may have already answered this on a previous podcast. So, Daria, I'll come to you. We as an industry are already working to decarbonize. What is the one thing you think we need to do better to get there faster? I think that it's uh, absolutely key to actually communicate the value of the great efforts that are being done by the industry. And I think that there is so much and there's, there, there are so many initiatives, projects, and I think uh, definitely um, putting ourselves out there and also communicating both the climate value and the social value of these projects is particularly critical. And we are actually designing an SDG roadmap for hydrogen, looking at the contributions that hydrogen can make to also the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the social value that it can help unlocking across different geographies. And I think that there's a great amount of good practices and excellent projects that are already being deployed by the industry. So I think putting the word out there and um, um, making those, those, those good practices and, 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 and case studies heard will be absolutely critical going forward. So I'm gonna come up with a different answer today. Okay. So, so my answer today would be, would be linked to the comment that Daria made about the communication to all the stakeholder groups. But I think it's actually starting to treat those stakeholder groups more like partners. So we are sharing common aligned strategic goals, common aligned values, and explaining the role in the industry has to play in that to help break down some of the barriers that we see, whether those barriers are around permitting, the acceptance of technology, the acceptance of consumers for different end solutions. 
like really important, but also important to encourage people to join our industry as well to help us drive the, the solutions moving forward. Yeah, all support it, all great, and thank you. And thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today and for your insight. Thank you. Thanks, Steph. Thank you, Darren. Thank you.